right. Here we are. Welcome back. Science Welcome back. in between. Science in between. This is Scott. This is Ollie. And here we are. Here we are. This is yeah. not couples therapy. This is it just is not. Ollie and I talking. <laughs> couples therapy. That's great. Yeah. We, you know, we had to have a, you know, an intervention. We had to have some folks come in and, you know, after last episode, mm. sit, us really down. sit us down, you know, work through our, our, Issues, yeah, yeah issues, so that we can communicate issues. better with one yeah. another. <laughs> Be better listeners. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So this is the new and improved Scott Nolly. Welcome to the show. Yes, th- that's exactly what this is. And we're talking about something this week. We certainly are. <laughs> something that hopefully will not create uh, division and strife. It's and Strife and angst and, <laughs> and all angst. the other words. Um, yeah. So this week... Um, we're going to revisit the notion of leadership. And I think we're going to mostly focus on sort of school leadership. So we've talked a little bit since Ali and I are both in positions of leadership in the institutions we're in um, yeah. and, ha- and have held various roles in that, in that um, arena. We have talked about that before, but we're going to talk a little bit more about school leadership, teacher leadership, the way that we think about sort of K-12 environments and what it means to be a leader in those spaces, um, both the also, ones that are recognized and the ones that are, you know, unofficial leaders. And also how those leaders can enact change hmm. or, you know, a- affect innovation. I mean, I think this is really in response to the work we, you and I have been doing um, you know, uh, around all the STEM stuff this semester, the I mean, this well, not this semester, these last like four years, three years, yeah, a couple of years, with, yeah, with the uh, the new PA standards coming out. Um, you know, I've been charged with doing a lot of work with you know IUs and things, and and we started uh, a professional learning community with folks. We are actually supporting several professional learning communities. One focused on specifically with uh, okay, how do we support school leaders in helping to initiate more change in their districts with regard to, you know, steals, which is the our our state yeah. standards, which is a horrible acronym. Um, yeah. How do we, you know, help to inform or initiate change or support their work that the school leaders would be doing? And so yeah. Yeah, we had our first PLC meeting. Uh, this is one that me and uh, our friend Jason Batula have been doing. So this is one he and I are uh, leading together. And we met with our folks uh, about a week or two ago to just like say, okay, what are the things you're seeing? What are the problems you're seeing in working with uh, school leaders? And, you know, they just, you know, just identified so many. Yeah. So many challenges that they're facing in terms of navigating school leaders. And I think a, a lot of ways it reflects you know, other parts of education, you know, we are seeing a lot of turnover with, you know, teachers or teachers moving from one district to another. And that's happening with administrators too. You know, yeah. they're, they're leaving one district to, to move to another because the, there's these cultures and of, of institutions and cultures of districts that, you know, people are trying to escape or trying to move to, yeah. you know, greener pastures. Right. Well, and I think it's, it's a hard time for leaders right now. I mean, it, you know, we see it in our, in our political context and we see it in lots of other places. It's very, it's very difficult to be in a position of responsibility in any institutional context right now, because most of them are having some kind of significant problem or another. And maybe those things have always been present and they're, and, and they just aren't surfacing 
they weren't surfacing as much in the past as they are now. But, you know, I mean, we've had university presidents step down. We've had we've had political figures have, you know, sort of collapses of their careers. And and there are there are, there are big challenges in leadership right now. It's very difficult to get people into these roles and it's even more difficult to get them to stay. And if they do stay, it's very difficult to keep them, you know, sane and um, and not not exhausted mentally and physically and emotionally. So, yeah, I think it's a challenging time for leadership and for lots of reasons. I mean, also there's the layer below that, that, you know, we hear from a lot of leaders in schools right now, how difficult it is to find teachers, to find substitute teachers, to, to staff their buildings, to be able to have the people they need to do the instructional work that they're trying to do. So yeah, it's, it's a rough, it's rough out there. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I think that like some of it, I think, does it come from the culture, the change in culture in schools and the changing cultures of institutions, or does it come from like the, uh, all of the, I don't like to say threats, but there's certainly all of these things that are, you know, challenging organizations and challenging individuals within organizations. And there's more stress and anxiety and things now than, I mean, I can remember in the 30 years I've worked in schools, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably all those things, right? I mean, that's the way this works is that it's usually not single factors that contribute to this kind of sea change. Um, it's usually lots of different things. Right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, it's uh, now we're sounding somber. Um, and, 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 and <laughs> well, I'm already in that space, so I'll just yeah. put that out there. <laughs> yeah. I think we both are. So that's making it probably a little harder than usual to be our, our jovial, uh, or at least, uh, curmudgeonly selves. Um, so, but I do think, I guess what we can talk about, cause we mentioned talking about this is taking a step back to talk about the NISL work, the National Institute for School Leadership, um, was an organization that I got connected to more than a decade ago um, and did some work with them developing. They were developing a leadership curriculum for school leaders. It was mostly targeting um, formal leaders, which is to say building principals, assistant principals, superintendents, that sort of thing in school districts. Um, but it it had multiple aspects to it, but they wanted to have a section on science instruction and what science instruction should look like and how they can help support it. So I worked with NISL to, um, to develop those couple of days of professional learning for, for leaders and Ali and others, including Jason, the aforementioned Dr. Padula, um, were involved with doing some of that work, both statewide and nationally. And and eventually that curriculum was adopted by Pennsylvania as uh, PILS, the Professional uh, Institute for Leadership, I think is what it stands for. And um, so, I mean, that was that was an attempt to do something similar to what we're doing now in in the sense that we were trying to help school leaders understand the kinds of change that needed to happen in classrooms um, to better support the kind of science teaching that we um, and the state and the na- the national NGSS all support, which is a more um, phenomenon-driven, inquiry-focused, you know, a curriculum where kids are generating their own explanations for things. And that was 
that was, uh, you know, communicating to leaders about that was an important, an important group to have them hear that message. Yeah. So my understanding of that, and I didn't work really closely with that project, um, was that you aligned it, or maybe it wasn't you, I don't know the history of it, but that there was this, you know, organizational change, change management sort of perspective Mm -hmm. that informed it. And, and the one that I've heard referenced in that was the Cotter model. Is this, is this something that like you, is that the historical, your historical memory of this? um, That work or that model and that um, was part of that curriculum, but it wasn't part of the piece that I was doing. So they, the, the leaders that were participating in NISL or in pills did, did use that model as a model of change. They did have explicit exposure to that as part of the other parts of the the curriculum that they were in. But mine, my part was really explicitly just about science. What are the shifts in science instruction? Why do we need those shifts in science instruction? So, you know, building up a, a sense of need for that shift and then what should the shift look like were really the f- focus of my particular work. Yeah, I wasn't really that familiar with like change management, you know, or any of the organizational change, you know, theories. Because like one of the ones that in our PLC somebody brought up was something called the ad car, which is another one. I, I'm sure you love these because they're all like, yeah, you sure. know, they're all buckets, right? Yeah. They're either <laughs> like, buckets or lists or some combination of buckets and lists. Yeah. Or buckets with lists oh, within lists the buckets. Of buckets. Yes. Of buckets. Yes. But I mean, I think it, I think all of them are trying to design uh, are designed to provide some sort of you know supports for people because it's a muddy process. I mean, yeah. you know, leading change in in a department or in a district that's hard work, and it's like hard to like think about all of the moving parts. And it provides a framework or a way of seeing it. It is not the way, but it can help you know folks who are like staring at you know the elephant and trying to figure out how am i going to eat that you yeah. know it's like okay well then you st- you start with this yeah. you know and then you eat this part and then you eat this part yeah. and like you know it's i mean i don't know how whether it's important for us to talk about like these in depth but like you know i i don't know what like it seems like the Cotter model is like this eight step process. That it's, it's a linear thing. You you create that a sense of ur- like a list. Yeah, it does. It was a, it's a linear model, Scott. Yeah. It's, not oh, it's, not, it's not a list. It's a linear model. <laughs> it's a list with little arrows in between the listicles. Yeah. So which direction to go. Yeah. But like, so, I mean, I don't know. There are certainly ways to, again, inform people's work, right? Yeah, inform people's work because i think that you know if i was a you know district superintendent right now who was faced with you know trying to get my science teachers to incorporate you know phenomenon based science instruction when they never have had that yeah i don't know what, like how i do that right yeah i'm well, like and there's and there's all sorts of questions about like so do you just support the people that are interested and come to you or do you, are you obliged to try and move everybody? How do you figure out, you know, on a sort of cultural level, how do you figure out how to support change the most effectively in terms of your resources? Cause you, you know, as a, as a leader, you have limited resources. Well, any human being has limited resources. So you got to make choices about that. But I think these models were designed to help leaders make decisions about like, okay, 
should I just do the, you know, there's a classic feed the Eagles or whatever, right? You, you take the people that are the real innovators and you really support them in the hope that they will convince others that that is the path forward, right? So that's one way of, of moving forward. But the question is, you know, from these leadership model perspectives, is that the most effective choice? Is it the choice in some contexts, but not others? How do I make those choices? Like, I think that's what those models were designed to do. Yeah. The other one I'm familiar with is this, the fusion of innovation. Are you familiar with this one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Of course the ed techie nerds know the most. They love that. that, Right. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, you have the, the innovators and the early adopters. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, it's come up a couple of times recently in my work with AI, because I think that's the thing that people are seeing it is like, you have these folks who are, you know, gravitating to trying new things with AI, whether it's in their classrooms or elsewhere, they're like, okay, I want to like learn all this stuff. I want to just be the first people who are like the adventure ventures of the school or the adventures of organizations. We're just willing to explore new things. Right. And, and so is it, do you target those folks as a leader and say, okay, I'm going to reach out to those, you know, early adopters, those innovators and say, okay, you are going to be pilots. You know, they're going to be the pilot right. programs within a school and let's see what other folks can learn. Cause they're going to have, you know, they have this as this nice little bell curve, right? Have you seen, yeah. I'm sure you've yeah, seen yeah. it. Yeah. The bell sure. curve. Yeah. You know, I'm familiar this, with the bell curve. Yeah, the, the bell curve of innovation. You have the yeah. innovators on the one side and the laggards on the other. Yeah, like, that's like, really <laughs> bringing them along. By that's an inclusive laggards. term right yeah. there because nothing no, – people love to be called a laggard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That is, yeah, top of, top of my list. Call just this morning. Yeah. Just this morning I was saying, Scott is such a laggard. Yeah, thank you. And I thought to myself, that is a guy who really cares about me. That's why we're in couples therapy is because he's I'm always calling put, me a laggard. I'm going to put Scott in the laggard bucket. The bucket. That's the bucket you live in. Help. Help. I'd like to escape the laggard bucket, please. Yes. You're bound by tradition. Yes. That's what. That's the dis- defining characteristic of a laggard. 100%. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, those, and again, those sorts of models oversimplify. And I think the, you know, one of the critiques of that model that you've, that I certainly heard of this specific model, this. The the diffusion of innovation. Diffusion of innovation with this idea of like innovators and early adopters is that what can happen is you get sort of churn at the top. So you get the innovators and the early adopters who are constantly innovating and early adopting but it never penetrates into even the early majority, much less all the way to the laggards. And so so you have this small group of people that are sort of constantly fiddling with their own practice. And then the vast majority of people who just continue on with the things they're doing and they don't worry about any of that stuff. And and the and the cycle, there isn't um there isn't a long enough innovation cycle or support for that innovation to really penetrate down into the the lower I, I hate to even say lower but to to deeply more deeply impact the culture you end up just churning with this small percentage of sort of innovator types who you know are really excited about whiteboards or whatever oh we got the new right. you know, we got the new whiteboards we're going to they're constantly chasing the next shiny thing exactly and so that's the critique of it is these folks aren't really innovators as much as they are just 
like technophiles who like new things and are excited about them. And, um, and it doesn't actually make, you know, his, his little, the second half of his curve, he's got the bell shaped curve for the adopters. And then he's got the adoption or market share, which goes up and eventually supposedly reaches a hundred percent. But of course it doesn't, right. No. You know, we, we've, we've had lots of attempts at these innovations and it's never reached a hundred percent market share. I'd be amazed if it reached 20% market share in a lot of these things. Well, I think what happens is that people go, okay, they're working in institutions or organizations and they're like, okay, this is the next shiny thing, but I'm going to wait it out because there's going to be another next shiny thing. This 100%. is the thing we inevitably hear with, with teachers is like, we're really not doing anything different than we did 20, 30 years ago. We're really yeah. not, you know, it's just what, whenever this new professional development comes through, it's like, ah, and it's just like, okay, I'm just going to go back to my classroom and do my thing. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think that's exactly right. And that's why the people sort of below that level of churn are always looking up at that group that's doing that stuff and saying, well, that's fine for them. But like you say, why should I change anything? Because in six months or a year or five years or whatever, they're going to be talking about some new thing, but it's going to sound like the same old thing. So, you know, it's like the new, new math and the new, new, new math. And then, you know, and it's like, okay, we don't need that. Well, I think that is one of the things that um, we've tried to do, at least with some of our professional development is, you know, to kind of go back to the, the Cotter thing, which is that the beginning step for their, their model is to create a sense of urgency. And I don't know if we need to have like this, this outside threat or something like that, but I think that the urgency for us is really equipping students as citizens or as thinkers to apply sort of this evidence-based perspective in the world around them because there's a growing need for that yeah. and that's the that's the urgency it's not like hey this there's these new state standards that's not the urgency that we need to create the urgency if there's if there is one is that we have a growing list of people not growing list of people a growing populace of people who are becoming less and less scientifically minded evidence based minded um, who are not making evidence-based decisions or making those that that their decisions on some faulty evidence-based, an evidence-based that they're not critiquing. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, you know, the new science standards are trying to, uh, you know, really promote is, hey, you've got to have an evidence-based perspective on things. Yeah. But it it is, I agree with that completely. And I think that the difficulty is that it's very hard to convince people that this isn't about the new standards, that it's about something more fundamental because ultimately the new standards are here and they do have to deal with them and they're worried about the assessment that goes with it and they're worried about all the that stuff, but they're not necessarily sitting, you know, we, we don't have a system that's set up for people to really sit back and say, what is the best way for me to teach? They're always in this reactive mode of, well, what are the new standards? What and what in the new standards do I need to change for and what do I not? Or what's the new assessment? What's the new test? Right. What do I need to change based on that? As opposed to what do I think is the best way for students to learn this thing and how do I construct my practice in a way that's going to move towards that? That isn't really the way that we orient teacher professional learning. It's not the way that we t tend to treat teachers. We tend to think of them as reactive and we treat them as reactive and 
we try to convince them often, and I don't think we do this, but I think the general mode of that creating urgency is in some way to create some sense of fear or um, or discomfort with you got to fix this because the new standards are coming and the new assessment is coming and you better be standards aligned. And I don't think we're those scolds, but I think those scolds exist and um, they don't well, help. They, they absolutely exist, especially in schools where their pay, a teacher's pay is is aligned with performance on some sort of state standard, right? Yeah. You know, if they're like, hey, you know, here are the state's state assessments and you haven't done well, that means you're getting a raise or not getting a raise. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, that's a huge stick. Yeah. That's a huge stick. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. The, and that's the not. The PVEST data. We haven't even talked about that. That's, right. that's a, that's oh, a we, thing for another day. We do not ever have to talk about PVEST. I mean, well, I mean, but it goes to know. your point, right? Sure. I mean, but, it, but it also goes back to this point of like, okay, well, if you are a leader, how do you think about what you're doing in a way that, that, leads to productive change. Like, I think, you know, that's what we're, you know, this, when we're talking about leadership, you know, I think your point is really well taken. Like it, um, we have to think about how do leaders position themselves as not being about, okay, these are the new standards. You better get lined up with them because otherwise there's going to be trouble and trouble could be your test scores go down. Trouble could be your PVEST data goes down and therefore your evaluations go down. It could be all sorts of things, but it's not typically seen as, hey, there are these new standards. This is an opportunity for us to consider how we might want to teach science better and what that might look like and having that conversation. It's more about like, as you said, the stick. Yeah. I, I think that's one of, you know, we we started this conversation with know, these, the challenges and, you know, how teachers are leaving one district and moving to another, administrators are moving from one district to another. I think to come back to like causation, right? Mm -hmm. I think coming out of the pandemic, there was a lot, there still is a lot of authoritarian approaches to things. Yeah. Like people just going, okay, I have to make a decision. This is the, this is, I'm the one, the leader, Mm -hmm. and they can like, we could scale this up from I'm the classroom teacher. I'm making this decision. Right. Or I'm the building leader. I'm making this decision. Yeah. I'm the district superintendent. I'm the university president. I'm whatever. Yeah. Like whoever is I'm in the that, anointed leader. I am the leader of this thing and I'm going to make this decision. Now that always has happened, but I think that we're leaving a place where it was a lot of shared decision-making where people yeah. felt like they were part of the process. They were part of the, okay, this is a decision that's going to impact me. People care about my perspectives on that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And we're now in a place, whether it's because of cost or because of safety or because of whatever, that people are saying, I just have to make this decision yeah. and I can't, I can't involve you in it. Like there's a pretty big technological decision that happened at our university that not a single faculty member was consulted about. Because yeah. I asked that question. I asked it to our provost, who was involved in this decision? Yeah. What faculty? And she said, we didn't consult with faculty. And I'm yeah. like, this isn't an instructional thing. Don't you yeah. think it would be that? I said- the Faculty was have control of the curriculum. In fact, I said, 
a team of faculty selected that thing. Mm. The, a team of faculty selected that technology and you've decided to cancel it without involving a single one of them. Mm. Doesn't that seem like a disconnect? And yeah. the response was, I have to save X amount of money. These are my choices. I'm this was my decision. Yep. Yeah, I think I think you know that is absolutely the case. That that's I mean we're in a in a position now at um, Penn State where we are having a performance and program review, which is coming. We don't know well. We know how fast it's coming, but we don't know exactly what it means yet. But it's that same thing. It's like okay, we're going to look at things and we're going to make decisions about what programs or courses or who knows what will be canceled or eliminated because they're not efficient enough or not deemed necessary enough, right? Or not aligned with the market. So I think there is a problem right now with authoritarian, uh, I'm having an Ollie problem. I am sitting here speechless because I'm looking at you struggling with the word (laughs) authoritarian. Thank you. Wow. (laughs) I know. That word. That word right there. This is, yeah, the old manatee brain kicking in for me here. <laughs> smooth and useless. Um, so uh, I think that's part of it. I think another thing that is genuinely challenging about leadership right now, at least in higher ed, is I think there is a sense of faculty in particular's disconnection right now. They feel overwhelmed. They pe- feel exhausted. They, they're not engaged with the work of the university, of the college, of the department, of the, you know, uh, of, of their programs. I think they're just sort of saying, look, I'm, I don't have any more to give you guys. You guys completely juiced this orange during the, during the pandemic when you made me work basically, or made me feel like I was working 24 seven and I'm just not doing that. And so now there's a lot of pulling back, around engagement. So I think it's a, it's a tension there, right? It's like, well, how do we make decisions as leaders if the people who want voice when given voice don't take advantage of that and and express it and and contribute their voice to the conversation? And I think that's very different than what you described. I want to be clear. No, no, I I think those things are happening too, where decisions are made and, and there is no voice requested, but I think there is also the flip side of that where voice is requested and people don't They're speak spent. or participate. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, kind of cycling this back to K to 12, which is kind of where yeah. the focus was. I, I would say as a school leader, if, if, if someone by chance is a, a school leader, a, you know, building leader or whatever, you know, if, if you believe that, you know, we motivate individuals by creating the sense of urgency, the sense of urgency shouldn't be because I told you so. Yeah. Or because of like you should be scared of some or yeah this looming threat of you know the the state assessments or the you know the impact or it should be something that people can get behind it should be something where they feel included in the process or feel like they're improved in the process by being part of the process and because then it doesn't feel like something that's happening to them it feels like something that's happening with them yeah and. Yeah, I think there's a lot of research about that and about the fact that workplace, um, you know, satisfaction, a big part of it isn't about money, isn't about lots of 
the things that we would anticipate, but th- it's about agency and sense of right. control and contribution, right? Like I have some control over my work life and I'm contributing to some larger thing that I think is important. Like those things together make for a really good um, sense of self and sense of, uh, you know, that this job is the right job for me and that I'm, and I'm doing good work here. Um, so I think anything that you do to reduce that is going to impact people's willingness to, to contribute. It, it's surprising how much of this stuff that we talk about comes back to agency. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or it isn't surprising, right? Cause you uh, and I would not necessarily be surprised, but I think you're, you're the way you phrase it is correct. Like, I mean, I think most people are like, wait, agency, why, why would that be the thing? Like, what if you just give them a $20,000 salary bump? Isn't that going to cheer them up? Um, but then some people, the, there are people who stick around, even though they know they could make more money someplace else, yeah. but they stay because of the agency they have. I mean, there's yeah. always more money to be made other places. There's always, yes. there's always more money to be made. Yeah. It's like, well, what gives you satisfaction? Mm-hmm. What makes you feel like you're contributing? What makes you feel like you're having an impact? Because if it's, if it's just money, there's always going to be someplace else where you can go and make more money. But it's like, I can stay here or I can, because I feel like I'm playing a role. At least this is the perspective I've had, you know, um, because I know that sticking around someplace and having at least, you know, over the last handful of years, I felt that here at this institution, is it going to feel that same way in the next five years? I don't know. Yeah. But it certainly has felt that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Look at us, little dark storm clouds. Uh, yeah. Little existential crises here. Woo. Yeah. But oh. I, do th- I mean, I do think, um, I do think K-12 leaders and higher ed leaders, but K-12 leaders have an opportunity in this new rollout of the state standards to try and position this as something that t- teachers can have agency around and can potentially be excited about positive change. Like instead of seeing this as a thing that is being imposed on them, they can. And I think the most successful ones and the happiest ones will be the ones that choose to say, yeah, I I'm excited about this. I I would like to change my practice in ways that are going to be more responsive to kids that are going to make kids feel more engaged and excited about science. And, and, there there's always ways to do that and teachers know that so positioning it in that way i mean to the degree that you can i think is the what leaders need to do they need to say like look if you because i know also the the other side of this is there's a lot of teachers who are feeling burned out and exhausted in the same way that we were just right. talking about and and telling them that this is just more work um that's not going to fly no matter what big a stick you have about trying to scare them about new standards or new assessments or whatever. They're tired too, but tired people can engage if they're excited about the thing that they're engaging in. If they think it's just more work, well, you're not going to, you're not going to get a lot of traction. Or if it comes from a position of like a deficit based, yeah, like, you know, we as an industry stink at teaching science. Yeah. If we come from that perspective, like coming from it, like you all stink at your jobs yeah. and that's why we have new science standards and that's why we're 
pushing this new phenomenon-driven science instruction, if that's the approach people take, then it's dead in the waters. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good point because to take it back to the original place that we started with a little bit of this, right, with the Nissel work, like yeah. the Nissel explicitly, that they they made that an essential part of the piece that I was doing. They were like, you have to present data about PISA and about these international um, data sets that indicate the United States is like in the middle of the pack or below the middle of the pack in science. And you have to, that's the way they encouraged creating urgency was to try and convince them that current they science suck at their the jobs. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> let's create everyone, an urgency. You yeah. all suck at your jobs. Yeah. Now so let's... you should really try and get better. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how. Yeah, that is such a horrible approach because yep. who is gonna who is gonna follow that leader? Yeah, who's, who's gonna buy him? By that? Yeah, yeah. No one's motivated by like, okay, look, you stink. Yeah. Let's do better. You know <laughs> that is awful. Yeah, like I think anytime people take a deficit perspective to something as something like that is where the th- that's the worst starting point that you can take. Yeah, even if there is a deficit, even if there is one, right. sure. like calling it out and identifying it and and saying that's the reason why we're starting yeah. this right yeah hey kids we're gonna start class today by having all the kids who have an iep standing up and identifying <laughs> themselves and you know if you want to explain why you need extra support that would be great yeah oh, yeah that's that'll build a nice happy culture in your classroom Right. Right. <laughs> and hey teachers, all of you are the worst performing on the yeah. late la- the latest state standards. You, you know, we looked at our PBAS data yeah. and you are the lowest performing. So let's work on improving that. Let's put out your dumpster fire, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yes. I want to follow that leader. That's yeah. someone I want to Yeah. Follow. Definitely going into battle with that person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where we're ending up. I don't either. <laughs> that was, that was, you we, know. Should we find a joy, yeah, please? Sure. <laughs> yes. you, you go first. All right. So, you know, it's Oscar season and oh, I love yeah. to go see movies. And certainly this this uh, past weekend needed some, you know, movie time. Uh, we went to see American Fiction. Oh, yeah. With Jeffrey Wright and mm-hmm. others. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross. Sterling K. Brown. I would say this. Um, I don't want to give too much about the movie. Who would um, say this? But I think the trailers are doing this movie a uh, like uh, it's really selling it short because okay. I think it's you know it is about the stuff. If you see the trailer, it's about you know a writer who he's a he's a black man. He's he writes books that no one reads, you know, and then um, he decides to write a different book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the premise. That's the loose pr- premise of this, the, the, the movie, but it's so much more complex and darkly funny. Yeah. And yeah. I would really rec- like highly recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Um, and I, we saw it in a, in a packed theater. Like it yeah. was wild to say, cause this is like kind of like one of these small movies. It's not getting a yeah. lot of attention. It has been nominated for, you know, a couple of Academy Awards, mm-hmm. certainly for, uh, I think Sterling K. Brown is up for uh, supporting actor. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is for a- uh, best actor. Mm-hmm. I think it's up for best movie. It's not going to win. I think it yeah. might win something, but it's not certainly going to clean house because it's not mm-hmm. that big of a movie, but it's really well acted. It is really 
thoughtful. There's a lot going on in this movie that people can unpack and talk about. And it is, it's really enjoyable. So nice. I, yeah. like if I were to have my enjoyment scale of movies this year uh, that are in the Oscar conversation, it's up mm-hmm. there. It's up in, in the top two or three of movies I've enjoyed this year. Nice. Well, yeah. I think, I think I recommended on this show, Dr. No, did I talk about Dr. No, the book? Yes. Yeah. Percival. So Percival Everett wrote that book and also wrote Erasure, which is the book that is the basis for American. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, um, and I just got that book, so I'm going to read the book before I see the movie, at least. Oh, that's great. See how that goes. But I have heard good things. It looks great. Um, and I love Jeffrey Wright. He's, he's fabulous. So he plays his, like a very Jeffrey Wright character. Like this. I got that vibe from it. Stoic. This. Yeah. A sad stoic individual. That's classic Jeffrey Wright right there. For sure. All right. Um, so mine is a book I've been reading as part of a book club that I, I am, it's like a science ed book club. Um, and the, the, um, book is called Fugitive Pedagogy. It's, um, it's about Carter Woodson, who was a philosopher, black intellectual and teacher, uh, at the turn of the last, last century. So 1880s into the early, I think he died in, in the fifties, 1950s, maybe, maybe even before that. But, um, it's, it's a really, it's an academic sort of book, but it's not purely academic. It did win the, um, AERA, the American Educational Research Association book award. Um, but it, but it's just it's not a traditional biography um it's sort of a an intellectual engagement with his ideas that includes his life as part of that but he's a fascinating guy he's probably best known for writing the book the the miseducation of the negro which was um written i think in the in the 20s um and uh he's he's just a fascinating guy you know he was the he was the son of of enslaved people. He went on to get an undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago, a PhD at Harvard. He's he's um, but core to him. And one of the things that I respect about him, and I know one of the things that you and I care a lot about, is that he's a he is a teacher. He wanted to to change the conversation about how black people were seen in America. Um, and how they learned about their own history. And so he wrote his own history books that were adopted um, in many schools, uh, usually black schools, but not exclusively. Um, but he he's just a he's a fascinating historical figure that, frankly, I didn't know anything about before I started reading this book. Um, but it's a great book about about him and about his thinking. But it's also a great book about teaching and what it means to be a great teacher and and how um, how black Americans from enslaved people and to onward to lots of other places have have found ways to educate themselves that is outside of the system that has that they have rightly perceived as oppressing them. Right. So I think it's really it's it's a fascinating book. Um, it's really well written and it is I'm sure I'm benefiting from 
reading it with others, but I think you could benefit from reading it by yourself. Yeah. I mean, I just looking it up the, so uh, from Harvard university press and mm-hmm. this is the description. Black education was a subversive act from its inception. Well, that's yep. a pretty good intro. Yeah. yeah. Well, they talk I, I about, love that title, the fugitive, pedag- fugitive, fugitive pedagogy. pedagogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. So, yeah. It's yeah. So I give it, I give it double thumbs up, which I won't do nice. on zoom because it, makes all sorts of weird i i still does mine it doesn't work for me see like for some reason it does not like there now you're gonna make me do it uh, let the fireworks begin it does fireworks for scott it does nothing for me no i mean sad trombone wow well on that note on that note the sad trombone we'll catch you next time in between we'll see you then bye now 